On May 12, 2022, an all-black team of climbers made history by successfully summoning the highest peak in the world, Mount Everest. Known as the Full Circle Everest Expedition, this group of six men and one woman, all of African descent, made it safely to the top of the mountain and back to Everest Base Camp. The team included an array of climbers from across the United States and one native of Kenya. They ranged in age from 26 to 62, and they achieved this great accomplishment with the invaluable assistance of eight Nepali Sherpa guides. At a moment in time when even the most remote corners of our planet seem well within reach of human endeavor and ambition, this unique expedition is the latest milestone not only in the progress of high-altitude mountaineering, but the global advancement of racial diversity, equity, and inclusion in the outdoor recreation industry. Almost 70 years since the first formally recognized ascent of Everest in 1953 by Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, Black Americans have at last realized the metaphorical vision that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. defined in his many speeches that encouraged the aspiration to climb mountains. It was in August of 1963, the same year that the first American team led by Jim Whitaker had reached the summit of Everest, that King shared his dream at the March on Washington and declared that freedom for all people must be allowed to ring from every mountainside. In America is to be a great nation. This must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But throughout the civil rights movement of the 1960s and well into the 21st century, it would take more than 50 years for the feat of a successful Everest ascent to be achieved by black South African climber Sibo Siso Vellani on May 26, 2003. Three years later, Sophia Dannenberg of Seattle, Washington became the first black American climber to reach the summit of Everest in 2006. In the time since, of the many thousands of people who have made it to the top of Mount Everest, only six have been black. And more than 15 years after the first ascent of Vellani, it is only now that a team of black Americans has been assembled, trained, and financed to finally ascend as a community to the most prestigious mountaintop in the world. With the Full Circle Everest Expedition, the number of black climbers to ascend to the summit of Everest has now more than doubled. The story behind this groundbreaking accomplishment is the culmination of many decades of effort on the part of diversity, equity, and inclusion advocates who recognize the importance of creating recreational spaces and opportunities that are welcome and accessible to all people. To truly understand how we got to this particular moment in our history, I believe it is necessary to take a look into the lives of those individuals who are intimately part of it. Among the seven climbers, the Full Circle Everest Expedition team who reached the summit is Damon Mullins. I just happened to reach him in Nepal over the WhatsApp messaging platform while he was trekking through the Kumbu Valley. In the village of Fortse, a few weeks before the rest of his teammates arrived to begin their journey, I caught him while he was having his dinner. Excuse me here, because I just got my food served, so I'll be sipping a little soup while we're talking. In this candid conversation, Mullen shares not only his life and career as a climber, but also his work to earn a doctorate in the field of sociology through the study of war and military conflict. 
We also discussed the time he spent as a soldier in the U.S. Army. At the age of 19, he was called to serve in Iraq immediately after the events near his home in Brooklyn, New York, on September 11, 2001. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Chip Project. My name is Damon Mullins. I go by Dom. I am a member of Full Circle Everest Expedition. I am currently in Nepal training until our spring expedition commences in the beginning of April. Professionally, Dom describes himself as a social scientist. My specialization in sociology has been military sociology and the sociology of war, also race and ethnicity and sociological theory. And so basically military sociology about the military that in some way allows us to apply sociological tools to understand various aspects of the military and even improve them. You might notice, as I did, just a hint of cynicism in Dom's tone as he describes his field of study. His lived experience as a combat veteran in the Iraq War, a trained academic, and a staffer on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., have left him more than a little skeptical toward the prospects of resolving the many cultural issues that challenge our modern society through his chosen profession. Military sociology or the sociology of war is couched in professional conferences and what have you. You know, it's it's as it's as troubled as the military and U.S. militarism itself. It is in fact the reflection of the very issues between individuals and institutions, nations and peoples, as the the geopolitical situation is in itself. It's just a simple reflection of it. And so, to think that someone like me, some black dude from Brooklyn, grew up rough, fought in combat, came out of that, an activist would have like a space at the table and be able to have a voice and resources to sort of develop the arguments and research that was close to my heart would is laughable. It's laughable that I thought that that was even a possibility, but I was a real optimistic, fiery, anti-war activist at the time. And I didn't understand the nature of institutions necessarily, even though I was coming into a better perspective of them as I was interacting with them. I mean, I thought that I was leaving Capitol Hill to come into a place where I could speak more honestly and perhaps with greater impact, but it was actually the opposite. No matter how disappointed and frustrated Dom might have felt through his experience on Capitol Hill, he continued to work in service of his fellow veterans, and he would also discover a new cause to which he could devote his passion and social activism, protecting the natural environment. I like participated or donated time to a number of different veterans-focused organizations at various points. One organization was Veterans Green Jobs, which was based out in Colorado, and it trained veterans. We trained veterans in various vocations in the green industry sector when it was first like burgeoning. And after Obama's presidency and there was like more federal investment, 
And initially, the organization blew up, man. Like, we were responsible for a huge portion of weatherizations and retrofitting houses in the state of Colorado. And during that time, I was on the board of directors of the organization. I was the only Iraq veteran on the board of directors of that organization. And I had a new colleague that came that joined on the organization, Stacy Bear. And while Stacy Bear was working for the organization, one summer when I was living out there in Colorado doing work for Veterans Green Jobs, he took me on a, a hike of a 14er. And it was basically like love at first sight. I should point out that Stacy Bear is a long-standing leader in the movement to introduce veterans to the wonders of nature. Having himself served in Iraq, Bear has helped thousands of returning veterans like Dom to find healing and emotional solace through outdoor recreation and adventure. The path that Dom took to first realize his love of the outdoors follows the course of his life that began far from the mountains he now loves. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I see, but I was uh, born in Virginia Beach. My mother was originally from Brooklyn, New York, but she was in Virginia Beach for a number of years, like during high school. And during that time, she had me and she moved back to New York right away. I mean, growing up, nearly the first decade of my life, I was in foster care. And then I came to live with my mother and her family. And by that time, I had already siblings, three siblings from her. I came to live with them. And by the age, you know, of like 17, I was pretty much gone out of that situation. So, yeah, I mean, growing up in Brooklyn was rough as it is. But growing up, how I did in Brooklyn was even rougher, you know, to not have the support or the family connection or extended family. So, yeah, it was it was definitely uh, hard times. Despite a difficult childhood, Don managed to graduate from high school. He worked a few odd jobs as a fashion model in Las Vegas. But as an ambitious young man with a lot of potential, he of course wanted to go to college. Unfortunately, he couldn't afford the tuition. So Don did what many people in his position might do. He joined the military. And I was 19 when I signed, but what happened was when I was in basic training, September 11th happened. So when I was sent home to my unit, they were in Staten Island and they were actually the first unit to be called on for ground zero, September 11th. And I spent a number of months policing the city with them, looking for bombs, pulling security in like Penn Station, Grand Central Station, the George Washington Bridge until finally my unit was activated for deployment. And then I wound up spending about like two years on active duty and a year of that fighting in Iraq. So I'll never forget that day of September 11th because we were leaving Chow. I was in basic training and basic training in the army. You basically call it Disneyland because every day is the same. And so we're in Disneyland and then this one day we're being marched in a different direction after lunch and we're being filed in a different room and on the room there's two images juxtaposed it's one of the twin towers being hit by a plane and another of osama bin laden but no one knew who osama bin laden was at the time 
because everybody in my unit knew that I was from Brooklyn, because my drill sergeant used to call me Private Brooklyn, you know, people are like turning around and they're like, hey, what's happening? Like, what, what is this? Like, New York City is, you know, being hit by a plane. And I thought, and I told them right away, I was like, I think this is a movie. Drill sergeant comes in and he tells us to all shut up. And he's like, our country's at war. And so all of you guys here who just thought you were going to join the army or join the army national guard for whatever reason, like now the game is on and you're going to war, boy. It was really shocking to me. I remember the very first thing that I said after my drill sergeant was like, oh, we're going to war, boys. Like, I was like, holy shit, all I wanted to do was go to college. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't join the military for any patriotism. In fact, I didn't really necessarily feel like have any ownership over America. I didn't grow up thinking about that. I didn't grow up being around people, you know, in Brooklyn you know, older black people who had conversations about geopolitics or anything like that. This was just a means to an end for me. It became, you know, something very serious. I was in Iraq from um, about October 2004 to October 2005. I spent about, I don't know, four or five months in Kuwait because at the time that I was being deployed, it was early in the war, you know, being in a, a line company, a combat unit, a forward operating unit, we didn't have any of the, the gear that, you know, we should have had going into battle. So like we had uh, Humvees with like leather doors and no floor. Literally the Humvee that I rode from Kuwait to into Baghdad had no floor. So, and as a dismount machine gunner, I would sit behind the driver and my boots had to be on the back of the driver's seat or else they will be like dragging on the ground. Dom served as a combat soldier in Iraq for a year. Fortunately, he survived without a major injury, though many of his comrades weren't so lucky. He returned home and tried to pick up his life in Brooklyn, right where he left it. I did my duty, I came home, and I got a, a little apartment across the street from the school that I first went to when I was 17, and I had to drop out because I couldn't afford it. So I got this apartment right across the street because I was waiting until January so that I can re-register and readmit to school right away, and that's exactly what I did. And then I finished my, my, my bachelor degree. As you might imagine, because of, you know, my time in the military, I had a significant delay between beginning undergraduate and finishing it. So by the time I had finished, I had also developed a certain reputation in the anti-war activism community because I had served as a national spokesman for the largest post 9-11 veterans anti-war organization, which was Iraq Veterans Against the War. And during that time, you know, I was featured in a documentary about the war. And as well, I spent a lot of time lobbying in Congress, speaking to representatives and senators. And that caused me to be offered a job on Capitol Hill during my last year of undergrad. 
at the time I was really a jaded veteran, you know, combat veteran at that. And I was young. And so I had a lot of things to say about U.S. militarism, things where I could speak from experience. And then also in under, I had sort of picked up this torch to better understand our geopolitical context and situation. And so I didn't have a lot of pride or even a great feeling of accomplishment when I was offered to work on Capitol Hill. What it did was afford me the company of a lot of people that I felt were not you know, as serious about America's geopolitical situation as I was, you know, I felt like they weren't as invested and um, didn't necessarily see the end result of a lot of the policies that they may have even supported or something, you know? So I, I didn't feel necessarily like, you know, a proud Capitol Hill staffer. I felt rather powerless. Actually, I would say like during my time coming back from the war, that was probably one of the most depressing times that I spent was as a Capitol Hill staffer. I remember the senator that I worked for tasked me with going to Walter Reed Hospital to like greet veterans who were in rehabilitation in their rehab ward. And that was the first time that I ever went to Walter Reed Hospital. And you know, when I saw these vets there with some very serious injuries, it made me think like the guys that I knew that got banged up in my unit and, you know, had amputations or serious injuries. I never saw them again after they were flown to Germany. Once they became a casualty, I never visited them in Walter Reed. I never visited them in Germany. I never spoke to them when I got home. And it just brought all those feelings back like, wow. I'm sitting here telling these guys that this senator cares about them and he's got his leg blown off. But like, what about guys in my unit? Like, I've never even seen those guys again. So I struggled a lot with my responsibilities as a Capitol Hill staffer. And even though like it opened up a hell of a lot of opportunity for me, I couldn't seize it because of the depression that I was experiencing, the PTSD I was experiencing. And also like, the guilt that I was experiencing, like in, in survivor's guilt. It was a very difficult time in my development, particularly because before I had been offered the position on Capitol Hill, IBAW and being their national spokesman was a vehicle for me to sort of express that level of frustration. But after I had served in the Senate, or even while I was serving in the Senate, you know, there were philosophical issues between myself and IBAW that I saw that were just like incongruent and like irreconcilable. So I sort of lost my voice as an activist. I lost my belief in the political realm. If there was ever any sort of optimism that I had for it, I lost my ability to feel like things could change at that level. And so sociology really sort of made me feel like I could utilize these tools to illustrate a picture that more people could understand about the nature of this issue.
Yeah, so I left Capitol Hill because uh, the City University of New York had given me a, a admission as a doctoral student in sociology. And so I left Capitol Hill to go and pursue that. In doing so, you know, I thought that I could cultivate sociological tools that would help me better help the veterans community in a way that I felt was genuine and address the, the, the ills of, of U.S. militarism. I was entirely too optimistic. It wasn't until Dom started working on veteran green jobs initiatives that he started to see the practical ways he could make a difference. With the added benefits of environmental protection and having positive experiences in nature, he began to realize that with the help of his friend and fellow veteran Stacy Bear, that the way through his own healing would take him to the top of high mountains and beyond. Well, the truth is like, at the time when I did that, when I hiked that 14er, which was Gray's Peak in Colorado, I, I didn't have an understanding of the ceiling, basically, of this sort of activity. You know, something that I've fallen in love with thereafter, which is ice climbing, I didn't even know that that existed at the time. So, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I never even seen a frozen waterfall, much less thought about the, considered the fact that waterfalls freeze, you know what I'm saying? So, when Stacy Bear took me on this hike, and then I would say almost a year or two later, he wound up founding this organization, Veterans Expeditions. When he founded Veterans Expeditions, I continued to climb with him. And, and, I, and I attended various clinics that Veterans Expeditions had on rock climbing, on ice climbing, on mountaineering, glacier travel. I just continued to attend their clinics until eventually in like 2015, an opportunity to join a Denali expedition that they were hosting came about. Ironically, by working with Veterans Expeditions, Dom was given the opportunity to put into practice much of his training as a sociologist. As all of his fellow climbers on Denali were also former soldiers, he was able to use the experience as a case study to observe how veterans might use outdoor recreation as a means to deal with the emotional trauma of war. And in the process, he set himself on a course to climb even higher. So the idea that I could climb Everest happened after summiting Denali. I mean, it was an incredible experience. If it had not been so incredible and successful, I certainly would would not have remained on this trajectory and, and now have aspired to climb Everest. So I actually did a study of, because the, the team that I summited Denali with was a team of combat veterans, all Army and Marines, like myself. And so I did an ethnography of them. And uh, in the ethnography, explored their motivations, their you know, aspirations, their families, their reintegration processes. And I saw myself in all of this. And then having attended a number of academic conferences and presented that work, even published that work, you know, in just even conversation with people, especially people who had their eyes set on the seven summits or whatever, they're like, oh, wow, you did Denali. That's like one of the hardest of the seven summits. 
Next would be Everest. And I was like, wow, that's very interesting prospect. And then because of my relationship with Veterans Expeditions and heading out to Highlight Canyon every so often every year to ice climb, I had the opportunity to make friends with Conrad Anker. Just FYI, Conrad Anker is arguably one of the most accomplished Himalayan climbers in the world today and an avid supporter of the Full Circle Everest Expedition. And then Conrad dropped a little bug in my ear about the possibility of this and I was like, wow, that would be amazing. It was Don's passion for climbing and his friendship with Conrad Anker that brought him to the attention of Full Circle Everest Expedition team leader Philip Henderson. As part of this project, Don was being given the opportunity to be part of a major effort to raise awareness for the importance of creating a space in the mountaineering community where black climbers could be made to feel welcome and encouraged to succeed. As the first all-black expedition to the summit of Mount Everest, the Full Circle team aimed to make a bold statement that diversity, equity, and inclusion in outdoor recreation truly matter. I think it does matter, particularly because in the sport of mountaineering, people of, uh, of African descent are, are underrepresented, you know, and, and underrepresented is a euphemistic word to describe how scarce black people really are in the sport. So I think that by representing, you know, black people dedicated to achieving something like this exhibits a positive representation for black people who may be interested in the outdoors or who may be, you know, just developing their skills in the outdoors and make them feel like, you know, that's a space for them as well. It's a recreative space. It's a professional space for black people to aspire to as well. I think it also refers to the issue of like public health in the black community. You know, getting outside, hiking is walking and exercising and exploring your environment. My own outdoor explorations and the development of my skills in mountaineering has created also an interest in advocating for public spaces. So it has also been a domain where I've been politically active as a result of really just exploring something that I like, then understanding like, oh, wow, this place is so beautiful. It needs to be preserved. How can I help? So that helps the Black community in terms of its issues of public health or maybe some public health items that could be improved in the black community, but it also helps the broader community by having more people who want to represent positively for the protection of outdoor spaces. And then on top of that, here's the third win. The third win is that for the outdoor industry, which has mainly been geared toward marketing its products to white people, now you have the consumer population expanding because you'll have people of color who aspire to those positions and see themselves as athletes like that and now need your goods. So it's a win-win-win situation all around. Now that Dom's journey from the streets of Brooklyn through the war in Iraq to the summit of Denali had brought him to the doorstep of Mount Everest, 
He's now left to thoughtfully speculate what it might mean to be part of the first team of black climbers to successfully ascend to the top of the highest peak in the world. Well, one thing, you know, we have several professional athletes on the team, and I think that this is going to raise their profile, like, hugely. You know, we have other professionals on the team who are also connected to the outdoor industry in some way. Either they're mountain guides, instructors of some type, you know, working for Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School, or even a gym owner. You know, it's going to raise their profile and allow, you know, people to see black people represented in sport. As for me, what happens afterwards? Dude, I have no clue. <laughs> Dom seems content to envision an uncertain future as a climber and a scholar. Here at a tea house in Fort St. Nepal, over a simple meal of garlic soup and dal bot, he revels in the experience of exploring through the Kumbu Valley of the Himalaya in communion with the Sherpa people who have embraced him like one of their own. I mean, honestly, it's been amazing. Nepalese people are amazing. Sherpa are amazing. You know, they're just very friendly people and want to get to know you, want to joke around with you, want to see what you're about, want to see why you're here. So I'm always entertained at my interactions with Nepalese people. I've met some really strong Nepalese climbers that really, you know, inspire me. And I've had some opportun some great opportunities to get outside and climb with folks here. And I even some more opportunities that are coming. And the relationships that I'm building are great. Like, I can see how the director of Full Circle Everest, Philip Henderson, I can see how he had been on so many expeditions to Nepal. I can see how he spent so much time out here. I can see why he considers so many Nepalese people that he spends time with out here as an extension of his family. You know, because I feel just like that, you know. There's a little joke. Actually, some uh, gentleman came in and I was hanging out with him this evening. There's a little joke in Fort Say where I'm staying that my name is Dom Sherpa. <laughs> yeah, man. So it's totally cool, man. I, I love it. And I hope more than anything that I'm giving a good representation to our whole collective and also not even just a good representation like we're good people but we're also like you know hardy and and strong people i mean when you look at when you look at sherpa here in the himalaya you're like you know these people are hard they've survived a lot man and they're really resourceful well you know what does that sound like that reminds you of black people in the united states hardy people they've been through a lot and they're crazy resourceful so you know that's the same type of representation that i'm cultivating for myself and and hopefully contributing for black people in the united states for how nepalese people view them through his aspirations to climb high mountains Don Mullins has defined for himself a place in the world where he can express both pride and passion for his convictions. In the days that followed, Dom and his fellow team members of the Full Circle Everest Expedition demonstrated to themselves and the entire world exactly what black climbers can achieve. After almost six weeks of concerted effort, the Full Circle Everest team made it to the summit of Mount Everest. With Damon Mullins, the other climbers include Manoa Anu, Rosemary Saul, Eddie Taylor, 
Thomas More, Evan Green, and James Kagami. You can learn more about the Full Circle Everest Expedition online at fullcircleeverest.com. For the Joytrip Project, this is James Edward Mills. Our music comes courtesy of Artlist, featuring the talents of Spearfisher, Muted, Out of Flux, Ezekiel Raz, The Places, and Everett Z. The Joychip Project is made possible thanks to the support of the Schleck Family Foundation and the National Geographic Society. You can follow along on this and other journeys at joychipproject.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop me a note in the comments, or better still, write a review on one of the many streaming platforms that include iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. You can also reach me via email with your questions, comments, and criticisms at info at joychipproject.com. For now, go be joyful. And until next time, take care.